Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, one single, simple, profound verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The last time we were together for an evening service, we considered the question, what is God? Now remember, it wasn't who is God, but rather what is God? And the answer to that question comes from Jesus Christ himself in the Gospel of John, where Jesus proclaimed that God is spirit. God is spirit. That means that God is an, is an immaterial being. He does not consist in his eternal essence of flesh and bone. He is of the supernatural And we considered what kind of spirit God is. He's a spirit who is infinite and eternal. That means that he has no beginning. He has no end. And his presence is not confined to time and space. He is everywhere, fully everywhere, all at once. We learn that God is the spirit who is immutable. That means that he is an unchangeable spirit. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immovable, meaning he is unswayed by emotion. He's not influenced by external circumstances in the way that we are. He's of pure wisdom. Nothing can be taken away or added to his wisdom or his knowledge. He's omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. He cannot lose or gain power. He is holy. That means he is unlike us. He is above us. He is transcendent. He is a most pure spirit, not defiled in any way. He is just. He is good. He is true. This is what God is, a most pure, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent omniscient spirit who cannot and will not be changed or altered in any way. A spirit who is worthy of all praise and glory and reverence and honor. And now tonight, out of this question of what is God, we consider another question. We consider the question uh, this evening, is there more gods than one? Last time, what is God? This evening, is there more gods than one? And the answer that the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives to that question is, there is but one only, the living and true God. There's only one true and living God, beloved. This is the heart of the religion that we claim to uphold. Now, I was thinking as I was reading my manuscript uh, this evening, just before the service, that some of you may have a problem with this word religion. It's very popular in evangelical circles for some reason to say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And I would say it is a religion. The Apostle James actually calls it a religion in the epistle of James. It is a religion based on a relationship, on a covenant between us and God, but it is a religion. It's a system of beliefs, It has rituals. Jesus himself gave us rituals. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
It has uh, established dogma. It has doctrine. It has a holy book. We sing the Psalms from that holy book. There's a way in which we are to worship according to the word of God. It is a religion and we should not be ashamed of that. There's nothing wrong with the word religion. I really, again, I cannot figure out why that word has been demonized in American evangelicalism. So hopefully you are not hung up on the word religion. As I said, James uses the word uh, in his epistle. It's a biblical word. The heart of the religion that we claim to uphold is the reality that there is only one true and living God. That is, when you get down to it, that is the heart of biblical faith. We profess as the people of God that, as the psalmist says, all the gods of the nations, all other gods of the peoples, are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. We profess as Christians that all other gods, as Deuteronomy 4 says, all other gods are the works of the hands of men. In other words, they are creations of the fallen and depraved brains and minds of mankind. They are not true and living gods. There's only one true and living God. We confess what our scripture text tonight says. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now our text tonight is indeed the most basic, most central, and even the oldest confession of faith that God's people have used throughout history. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is really the first recorded creed, if you will, of the people of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the very confession of faith that even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ professed in Mark 12, verse 28, when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus responded, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We serve, we worship one God, the Lord. And in the Old Testament, including our text tonight, when you see that word Lord, all in capital letters, you need to understand that is the personal name of God. I don't have time to go into the history of why we take that word and we use the word Lord in all capital letters, but when you see that word Lord, understand in the Hebrew, that is the word Yahweh. Or if you are a student of Latin, the word Jehovah. It's God's personal name. Yahweh. Jehovah is the one God. Beside him, there is no other God. Neither was there before or after him. He alone is God, and he alone, Yahweh, he alone is our God. Now, we should not take for granted, brothers and sisters, that our faith, our religion, is a monotheistic faith. What does that mean? It means that we recognize the existence of and only worship one true and living God. We deny the existence of all other gods. If we would, we, and we shouldn't, again, we should not take that for granted. We, 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 we can consider the context of our scripture passage tonight uh, from Deuteronomy. And 
if we would think about the context of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we would realize how countercultural it was for the Israelites, for the people of God in the Old Testament, to be monotheists, to recognize only one God and worship only one God. The book of Deuteronomy was written just as the 40 years of wilderness wandering was coming to a close after the event of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. You know, Israel was brought through the Red Sea and into the wilderness out of Egypt, and then they wandered for 40 years before God brought them into the Promised Land. God's people in the book of Deuteronomy are now gathered on the border of the Promised Land, the land of Canaan, and they were about to enter it. And as they are preparing to enter the land, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, gave the people of God a series of speeches, really, I think it's probably right to say a series of sermons, so as to prepare them for entering into the land, how they were to live once they got into the promised land. And beloved, we, we, we can't forget why it is that the Israelites were made to wander for 40 years up until this point. They were made to wander for 40 years, not because God's GPS was broken. They were made to wander for 40 years so as to allow that first generation of Israelites, the ones who were actually brought out of Egypt, God made them wander in the wilderness so that all of them would die in the wilderness. The 40 years of wandering was judgment from God on his people. Sometimes I think we forget that. The Israelites who entered the promised land, they were the children of those Israelites who were brought through the Red Sea and to Mount Sinai where God gave them the law. This is the second generation. Their parents all died in the wilderness, as I said, as part of God's judgment on the nation. Why were they judged? Because their parents were unfaithful. They sinned time and time again without repentance. They worshipped false gods. They grumbled and complained against the true and living God. They threatened to kill his prophet Moses. They even accused Yahweh of bringing them out of Egypt just to have them starve to death in the wilderness. Because they lacked true faith, they died in the wilderness. And this was ultimately manifested in the book of Numbers when God commands the Israelites to send 12 spies into the land of Canaan. And we know what happens. 12 spies came back. What did they say? There are giants in the land. There's no way we can take the land. Only Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can do it. The Lord has told us to do it. We can take the land. We need to take the land. The Israelites would not listen to them. They listened to those ten spies and they grumbled and complained and rebelled against God and God said, enough. You will not enter the land. They were made to wander as judgment against God for their unbelief. But now, as I said, in the book of Deuteronomy, their children, the second generation of Israelites, are finally about to enter the land. And as they do so, Moses, in a sort of covenant renewal ceremony, declares to them the very heart of Old Testament religion, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
This was so important and important for the Israelites to remember because the land they were about to enter, the land of Canaan, was filled with civilizations, cultures, societies that worshipped many gods. They were not monotheistic. This is why I say we should not take for granted the fact that our religion is monotheistic. When the Israelites were about to enter into the land, they were most likely the only monotheistic faith that existed at that time. They were going into a land filled with polytheists, people who worshipped many gods. And so Moses was calling the Israelites to stay committed to the one God, the Lord, Yahweh. They were to obey Him and Him alone. They were to worship Him and Him alone. Serve Him and Him alone. They were to make sure that they did not get sucked into the polytheistic cultures that were all around them. They were to make sure they did not worship the Baals. They were to keep themselves pure from idolatry and paganism. Israel was unique in that they and they alone worshipped and were in covenant with the one true and living God. And so, even to this day, the very confession of faith that many Jews still confess is our scripture passage tonight. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as I said, again, this is the very heart of our faith. It's the covenant people of God today. We are committed monotheists, but we are not committed to just worshiping any single one God alone. We are committed to worshiping the true and living God, the Lord, Yahweh. Now what I want to do tonight, now that we understand the background, the context of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, is I want to look at a few elements of this verse and just work out how rich of a statement this verse really is. We'll do this fairly quickly and then we will look at a specific point of application for us uh, as the covenant people of God today. So... The first thing I want us to pay particular attention to this evening are the opening words. Hear, O Israel. These three words are known still to this day as the Shema. It's taken from a Hebrew word which means listen, hear, the Shema. And understand the Shema in Hebrew implies not only just hearing with your physical organs that we call ears, It also means to obey. So in Hebrew, to hear is equated with obedience. This is why the Shema in Deuteronomy comes right after the Ten Commandments were restated in chapter 5. And this is why the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 precedes what Jesus calls the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Why is it that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind? Why is it that we are to keep His holy law? Because we are to hear. That is, we are to obey our God. When Moses issues the cry, Hear, O Israel, he is calling out to the people in a very real sense, Obey, O Israel. Obey, you people of the covenant. Obey the one true and living God 
for He is our God. Beloved, I hope you understand the Shema, this call to hear and obey, it's not only a requirement for the Old Testament people of God, we today are under the same call. If we claim to be part of the covenant people of God, if we claim to belong to the Lord, then we are under an obligation, a covenant obligation to obey Him. Doesn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will do as I say? Doesn't James say that we are to not be merely hearers of the word, but also doers of the word? To truly hear, beloved, in a biblical sense, is to strive after obedience. Our faith, the Christian faith, is a living faith. It is a faith which is meant to be lived out in submission to the Lord. And it's a faith which is meant to be lived out not only as individuals, but as a community in obedience to the Lord. This is the second thing I want us to notice about our verse tonight. First, we saw the call to hear, to obey. Secondly, notice what the verse says after calling God's people to obedience. The Shema says that the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, our God, is one. I want to emphasize that plural uh, word there, are. The Lord, our God, is one. You see, the Shema is not just a call for us to obey the Lord as individuals. It's a reminder that we are part of a people. A people who are in covenant. That is, we are in a relationship which has been established by God Himself. We are in covenant with the Lord. And therefore, our hearing God, our obedience to the Lord, is not merely an individualistic thing. It's not just about your obedience and my obedience. It is about our communal obedience. Our obedience as the covenant people of God must be lived out in a unified community, an assembly, if you will, which we call today the church. And in a sense, I think, because of this truth, I think it's safe to say that the covenant faithfulness of our church, or any given church, the covenant faithfulness of our church reflects the covenant faithfulness of the people who make up the church. If our church, for example, is not obedient to the commands of Christ on a corporate level, meaning if we collectively, as one body, are not obedient if we are not truly hearing the Lord our God, then I think it's safe to say that that reality reflects the fact that we, as individuals, are not truly living lives in submission to our Lord. We are not being obedient to uh, our God. Our faith, this is a great reminder for us, our faith, beloved, is a communal faith. Our assembly our community is a covenant community. And therefore, we together, collectively, as one body in Christ, are to hear, we are to obey the Lord our God. That's the second thing I want us to see from the Shema. Thirdly, I want us to consider this truth that's found in our pa passage tonight. 
I want us to see this statement that the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Now, as I said before, this clearly speaks to the reality that the Lord is the only true and living God, that he is unique in this way. It's speaking to the reality that our God is a solitary God. There are no other divine beings, beloved. There are no other deities. But we have to understand the, <clears throat> excuse me, the implications of this reality. As John Calvin says in his commentary on Deuteronomy, this oneness not only speaks to the uniqueness of God, it not only speaks to the reality that there are no other gods, it also de defines God's very essence, His power, and His glory. If He is one God, then His essence is undivided. His essence is one essence. It is completely united. Now this truth we'll look out further in our next evening service as we look at the great mysterious truth that our, that our one God exists as three distinct persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those of you who have been coming to Sunday school for the last several months have been hearing about this doctrine of the Trinity. So we'll, we'll look at this one essence of the one true and living God and yet how this one undivided essence, this one undivided being that we call God can exist as three distinct persons uh, and, and still be the same. Each person be distinct and yet the same in their essence and glory and substance. We're going to look at that next month. But we need to understand tonight that the essence, the substance of God is fully, completely, utterly indivisible. It is one divine essence. This is what Calvin says, and I think he's absolutely right. To say that our God is one speaks to the fact that he is indivisible. He has one being, one substance. But notice Calvin also says that God's oneness defines his power. Defines his power. What does he mean by that? It means that next to the Lord, ne next to Yahweh, no one or nothing has power in and of itself. Yahweh alone has true power, one power, an undivided, unshared power, absolute sovereignty. Omnipotence belongs to Him and no one else. Whatever power we as created beings think we have, which is next to God, nothing, but whatever power we think we have, we need to realize it is power which is only given to us, entrusted to us by the Lord. It's not original power. It's not even really power at all because whatever power we have is still under the authority of the undivided, one sovereign power of the Holy God. The Lord, the God who is one, His power is unique to Him and Him alone. He alone possesses all power. And Calvin says the same is true for his glory. The fact that the Lord our God is one speaks to the reality that he alone possesses all glory. True glory. A glory that will not be shared with anyone or anything. And if he possesses this kind of unique 
glory, then that means that He alone is entitled to all glory. Think about that. If God Himself is uh, the ultimate possessor of true glory, a unique glory, a glory that only belongs to Him, it means then that He is entitled to receive glory. That goes back to the very first catechism question of the shorter catechism, doesn't it? What is man's primary purpose? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. As the children's catechism states, why did God make you and all things? For His own glory. We need to understand, this is not conceit. This is not arrogance on the part of God. If there was a man who existed for his own glory, and there are many, um, if there was a man who existed who lived for their own glory, then that would be a great and terrible sin. And it is. It would be pride beyond all understanding. And why is that? Because man is not worthy to receive glory. Man is not worthy to be glorified. And man does not possess glory in and of himself. But God is not like man. The one God, He possesses all glory. He Himself and He alone is glorious. And therefore, He alone is worthy to have everything which He created give Him glory. It is not conceit. It is not arrogance on the part of God to expect that everything He made glorifies Him because He is entitled to receive all glory because He Himself is glorious. And so in this short verse, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we have an incredibly rich statement concerning the uniqueness of the one true and living God, the Lord, who has entered into covenant with us, who has declared Himself to be our God. And what I want us to do with the time that is remaining for us this evening, beloved, is look at one single point of application. Just one point. Beloved, it revolves around the reality that our faith is a monotheistic faith. That we worship one God. Hopefully all of you in this room tonight can agree with that. We live to worship and serve one God. I don't know any Christian, any true Christian, who would say otherwise. I've met false Christians who claim to be Christians who will tell you all the roads lead to the same place. All roads lead to heaven. That's not the monotheistic religion of Christianity. That's a man-made religion. But any true Christian would affirm the fact that we are monotheists. That we worship one God, the Lord, Yahweh, who is our God. But what we need to recognize brothers and sisters, is that in our sinfulness, in the sinfulness of our own hearts, although with our lips we deny the existence of all other gods, we too many times live as practical polytheists. What I mean by that is, although we confess to believe in one God, Many times, even as Christians, we live life as if there is more than one God. 
That's how we live. We live lives that contradict our confession that there is one Lord. And those many gods, we worship them often. And I know some of you might say, well, wait a minute. I never once worshipped a false god. I never affirmed the existence of Allah or Ra or Odin or any other false god. I never prayed to anyone other than the true and living God. I never bowed down before any idol of stone or wood. I never worshipped anyone other than the Lord. How can you say, I am a polytheist, I am a practical polytheist? Beloved, we have to realize idolatry, polytheism, the worship of many gods, manifests itself in ways other than literally worshiping false gods. And we can't lie about this reality, brothers and sisters. We can't deceive ourselves or others about who or what we worship with how we live our lives. If we would take an honest stock of our life, we would see that all of us do indeed worship many gods. We worship ourselves. It's exactly what we are doing when we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We are putting ourselves above our neighbor and above the command of God, and we are worshiping ourselves. We worship money when we pursue wealth more than we pursue holiness in our lives, when we love our stuff more than we love the Lord our God. We worship our careers, success. We worship our status among other men, our material possessions. We worship cultural acceptance. What do you think a Christian is doing when he refuses to speak the truth of God's Word because he doesn't want to be scorned by the culture around him? He's worshiping cultural acceptance. We worship sporting events, which keep us and our children from coming to the house of God to receive from Him the words of eternal life. Beloved, we even worship our families and loved ones. These good gifts that God has given us, they easily can become objects of worship. We can easily love them more than we love the Lord. We shower our praise, our adoration, our affections on many things and many people. St. Augustine knew this. He talked about it often. And he said that many times we misorder our affections. We misorder our loves. Meaning, we love others and we love stuff more than we love God. And so we get the order of our love wrong. We love others more than we love the one true and living God. And unfortunately, Augustine's right when he points out that when we do that, we are actually not loving others the way that we claim we are. He says if we want to love others well, we need to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind first. But our idolatry misorders our affections. And so we think we are loving other people at the expense of loving God. It's all a practical polytheism, beloved. We profess a monotheistic faith with our lips, but we live as if there are many gods and we worship many gods. The sad thing is not only do we worship in a practical sense many gods, we even go as far as to put our faith in these false gods. You don't believe me? 
Look at what Christians pursue uh, for a sense of peace, for a, a sense of safety, security. Are they resting in God and God alone for true eternal security? Or are we pursuing false gods to give us that sense of peace and security in this life? That's placing our faith in false gods. We look to our many gods for wisdom and guidance. Don't believe me? Consider how much political TV or political reading or listening to political radio Christians do compared to how much they search the Word of God for wisdom and guidance. We have to realize that when we do these things, we are stealing glory from the one true and living God. Do you see what I mean when I say we are practical polytheists? I think we do confess and believe in our hearts that there's one true and living God, but we don't live that reality out in our lives, and all of us are guilty of it. All of us are guilty of it. This is why John Calvin said that the heart of man is an idol factory. Every single one of us is producing false gods in our hearts and we are worshiping them and even placing our faith in them. It is a painful realization about our own heart, beloved. None of us are truly free from this sort of practical polytheism, this sort of idolatry. That's what's really tragic about it. There's not a single person in this room there's not a single person in this town, in this state, in this country, in the world who is not guilty of this sort of idolatry. Every single one of us is guilty. And the fact that everyone sins is proof of it. Because when we sin, we are putting ourselves and our own desires above the will of God. Which means we are worshiping ourselves as God. None of us, even the most holy of Christians... None of us is free from practical polytheism. And the reality is, we will not be free from it in this life. All of us are, to use the language of the prophets, and this may sound crass, but it is the language of the prophets, all of us are guilty of religious whoredom. That's what our, our idolatry is. It's spiritual adultery. That's what the Old Testament prophets call it. And our practical polytheism, our idolatry, our spiritual adultery, it warrants nothing but eternal condemnation. This is who we are, beloved. This is what we are guilty of before the Holy God. We are guilty of erecting idols and worshiping them instead of loving Him with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. We are condemned we should be condemned eternally. But we have to say, we have to say, praise God. Because the one true and living God, the Lord, He is our God. Regardless of our own faithfulness or lack thereof, He is faithful to us. He will not break His covenant of grace with us. This is why when God made the covenant with Abraham, you remember that? When God told Abraham to cut the animals in half 
and lay them on each side. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to cut a covenant with you. And then he put Abraham to sleep. And Abraham had a vision of a smoldering pot and torch passing between the two piles of animal guts. You understand what God was doing in that moment. He was saying, this covenant of grace that I'm making with you and your offspring after you, I will keep the conditions. You see, the, the, the cutting of the animal was common in covenants. And it showed that if any one party of that covenant would break their covenant obligation, what happened to those animal parts would, in essence, happen to them. And what do you think it symbolizes then? That God alone passed through the middle of those piles of animals. God was saying, I will uphold this covenant of grace. And because I know that you are going to break this covenant, Abraham and your offspring after you are going to break this covenant, I will uphold it. And not only that, I will take the curse of the covenant. I will be the one to be cut and torn in two. It's pointing to Christ. God, our God, despite our unfaithfulness, is faithful to His covenant people. He knows our tendency towards idolatry. And that is why He came to us. That is why He became like us in every way, yet without sin. Because the one true and living God took onto Himself our human nature. And He lived among us. And He did what we could not do for ourselves. He always did the will of the Father. He upheld the covenant perfectly. He was always faithful. And so what happened? The one true and living God, knowing our idolatrous hearts, upheld the covenant of God for us. And then, He would go to the altar of the cross as a pure and spotless lamb and take the curse for the covenant, the curse that we deserve for our unfaithfulness. He took it onto Himself and He made satisfaction for all of our sins. He died the death that we deserve both physically and spiritually so that the covenant will be kept by our one Lord and God. And then He rose again victoriously. And in doing so, He set us free from the guilt and power of sin and death. This is what the one God did for us, beloved. So that when we turn to Him and repent of our spiritual idolatry, our spiritual adultery, we repent of our practical polytheism and receive Him by faith, He no longer sees us as the idolaters that we are. Instead, He sees us as His covenant people. Amazingly, amazingly, despite the fact that it is Him who was faithful, it was Him who upheld the covenant, it was Him who took on the curses of the covenant, amazingly, when we come and when we embrace Him, we embrace Jesus Christ, the one Lord our God in the flesh by faith, He now sees us as a faithful people, a people for His own possession. And that is who we are in Christ, brothers and sisters. We are the one God's covenant people. We are His bride. We are His people for His own possession.
So while it is true that as long as we draw breath on this planet, our hearts will always be prone to chase after other gods, to worship the Baals, to live in a sense as if there are more gods than one. While that is all true, let us always strive by the grace of God to fight against that idolatry, to live out the reality that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let us truly hear and obey and worship the one true and living God and Him alone and no other. And may the Holy Spirit be, as C.S. Lewis once said, the great iconoclast in our hearts. That is, may the Holy Spirit be the one who tears down and destroys our idols and false gods that we continually produce within our hearts. May the Holy Spirit do that work in all of us so that we would strive more and more each and every day to live to the glory of the Lord our God who is one.